Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to your malt mates at Cry Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation. Beer is a Conversation is our weekly sit-down with some of the people who make the beer industry the interesting and dynamic thing that it is. And through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the business of beer and brewing. This week, I chat with Luke Corbin, who is brewing with Myanmar's first modern brewery, Burbrit Brewing. The conversation came about at a chance meeting at the recent Seabrew conference in Bangkok. Funnily enough, uh, I was introduced to Luke by podcast sponsor David Cryer from Cryer Malt. Luke is a home brewer, one of the founders of Melbourne's Merry Mashes Homebrew Club. He's also a PhD candidate in anthropology at the College of Asia and the Pacific at the Australian National University. He came to be in Myanmar as part of his doctoral fieldwork and ended up working in the country's first modern brewery. His story is fascinating, not only how he came to be brewing, but his observations about a very unusual beer drinking culture. It's a fascinating chat about beer, brewing, and the drinking culture in a very exotic location. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Luke Corbin, welcome to Radio Bruce News. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. Great to be here. Yeah, Matt, I was, I was blown away. Now, we are um, recording this uh, just outside of Seabrew, um, having a bit of a chat, and uh, I was very surprised when I was introduced to you, and uh, you recognised my voice before uh, you, you recognised my face, so you're, you're a, a podcast listener. Absolutely, and it was quite eerie, actually, to, to see the words coming out of your mouth. I was like, oh, geez, that something's wrong here. I've listened to so many hours of that voice purely... Audio, yeah, it was, seriously, I don't know if you saw the expression on my face, I was kind of like, whoa, because it was totally unexpected. Uh, I was just, thought that you were calling in horror from, uh, for, from me, but anyway, but, but th- thank you for listening, it, 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 it was really surprising to hear um, that you're a brewer brewing in Myanmar of all places. Yep, that's right. So I've been living in Myanmar since the beginning of 2016. Um, the brewery opened in January 2017, and uh, you know I've had different levels of involvement since then. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing here. There's six of us, I think, that came over, and uh, we're having a great time here at Seabrew, making connections, um, big missions for... The brewery's name is Burbrit, so B-U-R-B-R-I-T. Um, our main mission here was trying to feel out uh, contract brewing opportunities because we don't hit our capacity at the moment. We're about to expand the brew house, and also to talk about shelf life and, you know, the kind of general things that so one thing about sea brew southeast asia brewing convention is that all of the participants all the countries are very very hot places so we're all dealing in the tropics so we wanted to chat to people about shelf life and about um, how they kind of manage those challenges but uh, i was fascinated to find because uh, you were a melbourne-based home brewer um, and, and actually, I should start by just asking how old you are to sort of give some context of, uh, of the time sure thing so yesterday i turned 33 oh happy birthday Thank you very much. And actually, Phil, um, who I spoke to, uh, is 33 as well. So there seems to be this group of people who are around about the same age that would have got into to craft brewing probably, what, about 14 or 15 years ago as, uh, as early home brewers? Yeah, I mean, for me, I kind of, you know, growing up and getting into beer, it was, um, there were a couple of craft breweries around at that time, but I didn't really differentiate them. I mostly, I always had the, uh, the wanting to be an individual thing, so I would mostly buy you know, First Choice Liquor and um, Dan Murphy's, the imported European lagers with the funny names that I'd never heard before. And then gradually getting into the craft beer and, and, the, and the brewing. So I started home brewing in 2012. So I've only been, you know, brewing for seven years. 
Oh, wow. Okay. And, but you were one of the founding uh, brewers of the Merry Mashes in Melbourne. Yep, that's right. So at that time, of course, the first few years when you start home brewing, you, you're just soaking up so much knowledge. And I was very um, present online on Aussie Home Brewer. And, you know, we're quite a few people on that forum lived in the inner north suburbs of Melbourne. And that's how the club started, basically. It was us chatting and saying, why don't we have a brew club? And then why don't, why don't we give it a shot? We got together. We met some, you know, really motivated, like, great people, got that club up. Um, so Justin Spicer was pivotal. He's the first president. Uh, so I was a committee member for those first two years, just a general committee member. And uh, I was learning so much about brewing through that club. It was fantastic. But my contribution was more like social events, and I did the newsletter and things like that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, shout-out to the Merry Mashers for just clean-sweeping Vic Brew. Um, absolutely incredible, you know, best exhibited club and also, you know, club of the competition. It's just awesome. Now, one of the things I find uh, commonly from uh, home brewers that go into uh, professional brewing is they come from often from an engineering or a programming or a science background, but that's uh, th- that's not you. You're a bit of a... a, a an outsider and that you come from the humanities school yes i do absolutely um and you know my first degree was cinema studies and i've always been into the you know writing and philosophy and film and art and all that kind of thing so i guess that's why i went down that sort of route in the club doing the newsletter and such um and yeah and that's also what sort of uh, gave me the formal excuse to get over to myanmar was actually to undertake a phd so um, I'm still currently enrolled in a PhD in anthropology, and I'm writing about the alcohol culture of Myanmar. Oh, that's, I look forward to reading your, your PhD. Hopefully it'll be in English, because I don't speak Burmese. So, Did, did you have a background in uh, uh, Myanmar before uh, you, you went over there? Yeah, that's right. So I did my master's degrees in Asian studies. And uh, you know, when I was younger, I also lived in uh, Vietnam and in China. So I've always had the... And I went to an international school that was owned by... Japanese so I kind of always had the Asia thing like in my life and when it came came time to basically make a decision about my career I was kind of at one of those you know junctions that we all have um, I thought all right I'll do the PhD and I thought what can I do it's got to be got, got to be a topic that I'm going to find interesting and everything and I realized you know what I know a lot about beer by now and I didn't learn any of that at university and I think it would be great to sort of marry the two so I pitched it I said, I'm going to write a history of beer in Myanmar. I'm going to write about how people drink in Myanmar. And, you know, went from there. And so you took up... Uh, so so you, are you doing it through University of Myanmar or are you just residing in Myanmar to, to do the research and... So my master's degrees and the PhD are all at the Australian National University. Yeah. So um, I remember when um, ANHC was there um, back in 2014, I think it was, it was great. It was a great moment for me because I spent so much time in that venue, you know, doing this sort of other sort of academic stuff. And then it was like, oh, cool! Now beer has arrived at the university. And we had a, Mary Mashes had a great time at that time. That was really good. Mm. But but you uh, moved to Myanmar as part of your studies to to do the research. Yep, exactly. So beginning of 2016, I moved over here, uh, over there rather. We're in Thailand right now. Um, yep, and uh, you know, uh, it's called fieldwork in anthropology, so it's basically like immersing yourself in a culture, getting your skills up with the language, and trying to figure out, uh, you know, how you can come back to Australia eventually and, and write about what you've learned. But, and what, what's the time frame for that? Oh yeah, I should have moved back already, so uh, yeah, it'll, it'll happen, I'm sure. But you were, you were now brewing um, for Burbrit, um, as you said. Tell us about how you went from 
researching your doing your field work in anthropology to uh, to, to working for a, a small uh, so is it Burmese brewery is that the yep, yep. so it's a Burmese owned brewery um, and I mean the name you know focuses on the point of difference of being Burma and Britain um, which kind of harkens back to the history of beer in Myanmar. So, sorry for listeners, already people might be confused. Burma and Myanmar, two different names, but they refer to the same country. Um, so, Burma is basically the old English name for Myanmar. And, uh, yeah, anyway, so... Um, just, because uh, um, it's been one of the things that I've been struggling with. I don't know the, the history very well. So, is it correct to refer to it as Burmese, or is it Myanmarese these days, or is there a... Now, in English, it's much easier to just say Burma, Burmese, definitely, like, that. that's the way to do it. Yeah, uh, and so talking about Burrit, so yeah, I arrived on, on the scene, and this is what happens when you're doing field work, you know, you've got your regular scholarship stipend, you've got a lot of spare time, you just go out and you um, try to make contacts, and yeah, I soon found out that this brewery was in the works and it was going to open, and uh, reached out to the owners, and it just went from there, um, yeah. And, and you're the head brewer? No, I'm not the head brewer. So I, I, we say that I'm in research and development. So I've done, you know, various things over various times. But my biggest contribution, I would say, has been with recipes. Um, so, you know, when they first started out, they had purchased all their recipes from a consultant, and you know, they were okay, but um, needed some tweaking and some work. And yeah, so I've kind of done a bit of training. I've I've done you know several brews, but. You know, I'm also writing a lot and doing a book, and I, I don't really want to, you know, lift the sacks and do all the hard work every single day. So, yeah, I wouldn't, yeah, uh, something like that. So we say research and development. But um, I was very, very, very uh, proud and lucky in many ways to have one of my recipes become their best-selling beer, and it really, like, got the brewery kind of off their feet in the early days. And um, that was a wonderful thing. I can say that, you know, my recipe is the best sold craft beer in a nation of 55 million people, of whom very, very few people drink craft beer. This episode of Beer is a Conversation is brought to you by Unleashed Software. Unleashed is more than inventory management software for brewers. It's a system that runs your whole business operations and gives you an unfair advantage. With Unleashed, you can create custom recipes, effortlessly track your cereal and batch numbers and understand your stock levels at all times at every location. Learn how Unleash can help you run and grow your brewery at unleashsoftware.com forward slash brew. Tell us, tell us about the brewery. Tell us about uh, what are the styles, what's the uh, approach, what are the, 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 the local tastes in beer that, that, that are guiding all of that? Yep, so the brewery started out with just three beers. So it was an English uh, pale ale, it was a lager, and it was a wheat beer, so kind of core you know, stuff, and then expanded to six, and then expanded to nine, and now currently we're sitting at ten, including a cider. And then we do kind of seasonal things, so I just put out a Marzen and a... Uh, Bohemian Pilsner for Oktoberfest, um, so two 500-litre brews, and those will just sit there until they sell out, um, these kinds of things. So seasonal beers as well, so using a lot of Myanmar fruit, and we won an award here, Chairman Selection, for the uh, Red Dragon Fruit Lager, which is, you know, also an exciting thing. It's our first award. Um, the guys very, very keen and very happy about that. Um, yeah, so it's kind of a mix of traditional craft beer styles. Funny to say traditional craft beer styles, but yeah, it kind of feels like that. So um, with the Burmese ingredients, I would say, and 
it's interesting because every time we've done a beer, it's been the first time that beer's been made in the whole country, right? So we made a Saison. It's the first Saison in Myanmar. We have no idea how people are going to react to it and how they're going to uh, enjoy it. Um, in terms of the Burmese palate in general, uh, we touched on this earlier. Um, yeah, there's a lot of hesitation to take on bitterness. There's no question. Like drinkers in Myanmar like things to be sweet. They find the hop flavors quite confronting at first. Um, and people, you, you know, they don't even know how to uh, describe it. Like soap gets thrown around a lot. Um, but people are catching on. People are getting into it. Um, it's in, in, although Myanmar is a very, very different country to somewhere like Australia, um, something very similar is that people who have been drinking beer have been drinking industrial lager for as long as they remember. So coming, being confronted with all these new flavors and everything is, um, is very much kind of a similar thing. Um, I don't know if it's even hard to remember what it was like the first time that we had, you know, American hops, for example. Maybe you have a very clear memory, but it's, it's just like that. It's like this whole educating and uh, trying to explain that maybe it's, this is a desirable flavor, you know. Um, and, you know. Some people, they just don't get it. They just drink it. They go, what? They never come back. But we're starting to get, you know, more and more and more. So, yeah. One of the things I'm really picking up in speaking so widely to, to people here at uh, Seabrew is the culture, the religion, the traditions, the background, um, the, 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 the sociability of a community. Um, beer is so deeply immersed in all of these things that you, you, you can't sort of pull it apart and so say, well, in Australia, this is what happened because we had a particular set of cultures and traditions that craft beer is now playing into. Um, what, what, what's, what is the culture and traditions and drinking uh, you know, type in, in uh, Myanmar? So, you know, as part of my research, I've also done quite a bit of fieldwork in the, in the countryside areas, and I'm in the middle of actually writing a coffee table book about the traditional kind of home brewing, you know, so the village kind of drinks, this kind of thing, because actually people in Myanmar, like in every, nearly every country in the world, have been making alcohol for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they've been making beers in, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they're still doing it in their villages. But... People don't call them beers. They have different words for them, different names, different categories. A lot of people actually consider those drinks to be food. You know, they don't really consider it in the same space as a beer. Which is when you go back to the you know, early foundations of civilization, when they talk about you know, parts of China or the Middle East, beer was food. And there is a whole argument that we created civilization because of our desire to make beer and that beer actually came before bread because the grains that they used were more suited to brewing yeah. than, than making the bread. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, you know, the agricultural revolution did not happen in only one place. So it also happened independently in China and there no one was making bread. But yeah, the argument still holds. Um, so did people, you know, start intensively um, domesticating grain because they wanted to, uh, you know, turn it into a food product or because they were making it into a porridge that then fermented which was a food product but also got you drunk yeah so i mean these kinds of debates are not easily resolved we're talking about thousands and thousands of years ago and then everyone you know people find a new archaeological site that seems to confirm one way or the other and so on and so forth but back to um the point about these traditional drinks in myanmar is that absolutely a lot of these um traditions are extremely old and the way that people are preparing these drinks, they've been doing it that way for hundreds of years, thousands of years, and the consumption methods are also like similar. So you see the same kinds of, um, you know, sorghum millet. Uh, yeah, sorghum millet sometimes 
corn in Myanmar, but yeah, not so much. Anyway, a lot of parallels with some of the people who are still doing these drinks in Africa, for example. So same preparation methods and consumption methods using like a reed um, straw as a, as a filter because they're, they're kept kind of, you know, solid. So all the grains are still in the drink when you consume it. Um, yeah, so, but going back to like religion and culture, all these kinds of drinks in Myanmar exist in the sort of pre-Buddhist kind of uh, society, you can say. So when uh, Buddhism kind of came into the country and became like big, uh, it sort of has crowded that out. Now, people who are Buddhist still definitely drink, but the dominant um, drink there is called, uh, so in English we often say toddy, um, it's like a palm wine, and so that's really big amongst the like dominant Buddhist population. But the kind of beers and things are more like outside that that pantheon and predate it. And and how about the drinking culture? Is is it uh, speaking to uh, Phil uh, at in in Korea? Um, it's very much a culture of men drink to get drunk, um, and there, there's you drink at uh, convenience stores or what were they called convenience stores there's not really a pub culture the way that we have in Australia it's uh, sitting around drinking at the convenience store or uh, with food yep that's the same I mean um, the the only bars that exist are kind of quite recent um, it's so there's been a few waves right I mean First thing to say is that, you know, Myanmar was a socialist country for a while, and so then when um, capitalist reforms started happening, the first kind of waves were more like Chinese barbecue kinds of shops. And that was the first kind of place that you could drink a lot of beer in the 90s, and then that kind of gave way to what are just called beer shops now, which are basically just like restaurants, yeah. So, you know, plastic chairs, food, drinking together, banquet style. Um, that is definitely more of a, like, Asian thing, I think, than to sort of the UK, UK Anglo, like, pub kind of culture. Um, that's, you know, starting to take off, but uh, it's not huge. And in regards to drinking to get drunk, I mean, that's a that's a very thorny one. Um, doesn't everybody, you know, to an extent. Uh, I think people drink to have fun, you know, um, and it's the same everywhere, all over the world. Uh, yeah, the, but on beer consumption, in particular in Myanmar, one thing to say is that beer is very much a premium drink in Myanmar. So Myanmar is a very poor, poor country. And you can buy a bottle of whiskey there for the same price as a bottle of beer. So if you want to get drunk, you're probably not going to buy beer, like if, if that's your only aim. There's many, many levels. The cheapest drink you can buy costs you the equivalent of 20 cents in Australia, and it is literally industrial alcohol mixed with water in front of you and then stirred. And you really shouldn't do that. That's extremely bad for your liver, and a lot of people are dying in Myanmar because of that. But when you can buy this kind of alcohol at that cheap price, the proposition of paying a dollar for a can of beer, it, it puts it in a whole other world. It's very much like a middle-class, aspirational, um, kind of to be seen or to be drinking it for the flavour kind of drink. Yeah. How is that? Is, it, is that the taxes on beer versus spirits, for example, that can see such a price differential? Yeah, it's not the taxes. It's the fact that you can produce the spirits so cheaply because in I think in a, in a free environment um, where there aren't those kinds of differentiations in the tax regime, it's just because uh, it's very, very open kind of cowboy style in Myanmar. Like if you're just buying an industrial alcohol and putting in some flavor thing, you can sell it for dirt cheap you know, absolutely dirt cheap, whereas beer requires fresh ingredients, requires all kinds of things. So beer is still extremely cheap in Myanmar, but it's not as cheap as all the other stuff. We would like to thank Rallings Labels, Stickers and Packaging for sponsoring this edition of Beer is a Conversation. 
If you are looking for a more efficient way to package your small run, collaboration or special release beers, make sure you have your own conversation with the guys from Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging. They specialise in supplying ready-to-fill, shrink-sleeved cans or bottles to the craft beer industry. They take care of everything for you and take the pain out of packaging your special brews. If you would prefer a label or sticker on your cans or bottles, Rallings can help with this as well. Just give Paul or Brad a call on 1300 852 235 to discuss how they can help you. If you can't stop to write down that number right now, it's in the show notes with a link to their website. So, so tell me about uh, Burbit Brit uh, Brewing. Who, who are the, the the people behind it? Who's the money behind it? What was the founding? Did they see what was going on elsewhere and think, hey, Myanmar is right for uh, craft brewing? Yep, that's exactly right. So three founders. Um, we, the term is repat. So, you know, people who left Myanmar when the economy wasn't so good, made their money elsewhere, and then when political reforms started happening in the last 10 years, have decided to, you know, invest there and um, give it a shot. Um, and uh, let me see. Yeah, so that's basically it. The staff are all local. So you've, we've got about 90 staff now, I think, maybe 100 uh, across all the teams. Um, but the uh, the owners kind of fly in and fly out. We've got one of them is based in Yangon, one of them is still based abroad. Basically, they're all craft beer fans. And when... So the first thing to mention is that the licensing regime in Myanmar is extremely restrictive. So you cannot simply apply for a license to brew beer. It's impossible. These guys got one through a stroke of incredible good fortune. And once they got that license, it's basically like, and also like a responsibility thing. um, They're extremely valuable. Um, And yeah, so they just went went full in from there. At the beginning, they were were a little bit um, tentative like everybody has been in Myanmar, because, I mean, there's so much to say, but basically, uh, I mean, the future of the country is still very much up in the air, but it's only very, very recently that people have felt a little bit more um, free and game about putting themselves sort of out there. Like, I remember when I first met these guys, you know, they didn't want to be in the public eye at all. It was still very cagey because they weren't sure what the authorities were going to do, although they got the licence. The licence was from the government. Um, the military who, uh, you know, kind of run the country behind the scenes, they're the dominant player in the country, so in the beer market, so they have 80% market share. So it's still a little bit like, you know, and there has been acquisitions in the past where the military has literally come in and just taken over breweries. So at the beginning, they were very tentative, but now they're right out there in the public eye, all over Facebook saying, you know, this is me, this is my brewery, this is what we're doing, and this is why craft beer is great and you should go for it. And an interesting thing on there now that I've said craft beer in Myanmar, so the original translation that we were using for craft beer was called Anupanya beer, which means artisanal. It didn't get any traction. It's very hard to translate craft. I mean, you know, craft is a nebulous and tricky word anyway um, in the English-speaking world. But uh, translating it as craft just didn't fly. People just didn't get it. So, and, and, you know, sales also, I think, suffered because of that. When we changed the term to share beer, which kind of translates to premium beer, that's when things really took off. That's when people understood. It's hard, I think, when people don't have the same kind of, like you say, country background. Basically, in Myanmar, people don't, um, you know, sort of have that same valorization of 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 craft, of, of hard work, of, of using your hands, this kind of thing. So trying to get that into language didn't make sense. But if you translate it into a kind of a class thing, like a premium thing, like this product uses fresh ingredients, you know, it's local, all this kind of thing. People got that a little bit more. 
So we're getting a lot more traction using using this share beer as, as the name. And, you know, one thing that people haven't talked about at this convention, which I would love to know, is how everybody is translating these concepts into the local language and how much, you know, each um, brewing nation in Southeast Asia, of which there are 10, um, how much consumers and, and the producers are trying to differentiate their product and say, we're actually, like, this is actually a foreign thing. Craft beer is a foreign thing that we're doing here. Or how much they're trying to say, you know, no, I'm Filipino, you're Filipino. And, um, you know, this beer is whatever the Filipino word for craft beer is. That, that's actually uh, stopped me in my tracks a little bit. There's so much just in, in, in that idea. And on one hand, even in Myanmar, it comes down to marketing. Because what you call a product is an element of marketing. But also there is very much a Western idea of we become so industrialised that going back to craft had value, whereas it sounds like in Myanmar it's almost because pretty much everyone's an artisan because everything is handmade, uh, to, to use a shocking generalisation, that it doesn't have any cachet to just sort of say it, it would almost be like craft is average or craft is basically everything. Totally, yep. And so we didn't get any traction there and it was it was a topic of much conversation. But things have been much better since we've we've changed to this um, share beer designation. And it also puts us, you know, in a, in a, in a better sort of position vis-a-vis all the big breweries. So I should mention that Burbit's the only craft brewery making beer in Myanmar, right? So it's all industrial beer. And then there's two brew pubs that, um, well, they're not brew pubs, but they kind of look like brew pubs and they import craft beer from um, other countries. So, uh, you know, we're, it's basically us versus, you know, big beer. Um, but in some ways, big beer in Myanmar is much scarier than elsewhere because it's not just about corporations, it's also about vested interests and um, military-owned conglomerates that, you know, uh, do do nasty things. The idea of share beer does that mean you know something that you would share? Uh, you, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, another vernacular to, to say it. You know, you, you might keep uh, craft cheese singles in your fridge um, for when you want a toasted sandwich yourself, but when you have a dinner party, you get the good stuff um, and to share with your friends. Is, is, is that where that idea of sharing being premium comes from? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, the ling- linguistically, it's just, you know, that's just the, the sound of the word. It just means premium. So share, share beer. So it's a Burmese word. Oh, so it's not share as in sharing, like the English word. For, so share is the Burmese, sorry. So it's, in English, it's literally premium beer. Okay. So it's just purely taking like this pitch and saying, yes, our beer is three times more expensive than the industrial beer. But like, look at all the varieties and it's fresh and it's using, you know, Myanmar ideas and ingredients, this kind of thing. Yeah, so it's basically like prosecuting the same kind of message that people do for craft beer. We're just calling it premium beer, and that's working in Myanmar, and that's just that's getting people drinking it, which is the first thing, right? And it's the most important thing is just getting people drinking the beer and understanding what it is. Because, like I said before, the number one uh, reaction that we get is perplexion. You know, people are just like, what is this? <laughs> There's absolutely no frame of reference. Also, because Burmese people are not huge travelers. I mean, they go to very particular places. There's over a million here in Thailand working as undocumented labourers, right? But they're not being exposed to craft beer. They're on a fishing boat somewhere or they're in a factory somewhere. Um, very small proportion of Burmese people have been able to travel and seen what beer is like in the rest of the world. So there's absolutely no kind of reference point. So uh, Burbrit uh, Brewing, how big, what, what sort of volumes are we talking about? So at the moment we can ferment 20,000 litres at a time over multiple vessels. Um, we're about to install a 20 hectolitre brewery. At the moment we're just on five. 
Uh, and yeah, we're way, way below you know production capacity, and that's one of why we're here trying to drum up contract business because actually it's not that far from uh, from Bangkok if you drive overland. It's only a couple of days, so we're thinking that that could be you know um, an interesting direction to go in. And I mean, the thing with Thailand is that it also has its own unique kind of regulatory environment, which means that there are incentives for people to contract brew abroad. Over the border, basically. So a lot of breweries here in Thailand are brewing in Cambodia, actually, and then getting it driven in and sold here. Uh, yeah. So, in terms of plans for the future, and in terms of the way that the brewery has grown, I mean, when we started out, we had three fermenters, 500 liters each, and that lasted. I think by April, we'd already gotten another. Uh, what was it? Another 6,000 liters on board. And it's just been like go go go. Previously, the venue was a brewery and a tasting room. Uh, the brewery has colonised nearly like the entire entire indoor space, and now we have this kind of small tasting area like outside, and it's just already running out of room. Already thinking, you know, same story with a lot of um, craft breweries everywhere, but things just move so fast. That was my next question. So, is, is it a tap room style uh, approach? So obviously, it is, but. You're obviously wholesaling uh, a lot of beer. Where, where's that going to? Who, who who are your buyers? Yep. So, I mean, uh, we started packaging like in cans in January of this year and then selling into supermarkets. And that's been phenomenal for brand recognition, like really amazing. Um, who's buying it? Mostly Burmese, not a lot of foreigners in Myanmar. Um, so we I think people who come in to the venue now is probably about 80% local, about 20% um, foreign. And as for who's buying at the um, supermarkets, well, as far as we can tell so far, yeah, it's mostly like middle-class Burmese people who are, who are curious and giving it a shot. Um, and yeah, we've already got you know these kind of die-hard, welded-on fans, which is really awesome. And uh, they post about us on Facebook. Myanmar's a huge Facebook country, like many con- many um, countries in Southeast Asia. Like really, it levels way above um, Australia. Just like very intense. Uh, and yeah, we distribute um, pretty much nationwide. You know, when I say nationwide, I mean that in a Myanmar context because some parts of Myanmar are still not even like um, run by the government or the military. So there are parts of Myanmar that are basically like owned by China, like, very large parts. Um, so we kind of we 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 get it to the main like tourist centres and to the the kind of bigger cities, and uh, that's been like a huge achievement. Every step has been a huge achievement because services in Myanmar are not very good cold cold chain cold supply chain basically doesn't exist so you're talking about the cargo area underneath like overnight buses you know that's your best bet to get something cold somewhere um yeah so every every step of the way has been uh a challenge and yeah only more cropping up (laughs) you said they're big on uh facebook are they big on untapped over in uh, myanmar no absolutely not zero yeah nothing nothing like that no just uh, you see the thing, <laughs> the thing with phone use in Myanmar is that um, before 2012, a SIM card cost a thousand US dollars. So people had never used smartphones, and then they were dropped. Literally, boom! SIM cards a dollar now. So you suddenly, you know, we have, suddenly there's huge penetration. Everyone has a smartphone, but nobody ever had a computer. Nobody ever learnt about computers at school. Nobody actually knows what they are. People don't know what a browser is an internet browser. They only know what Facebook is. So when, you know, the, the sort of the way that people use their phones is like just so remarkably removed. So you mentioned just using untapped. No, but actually using any other apps is, is, is a rare thing. You know, like the only people using more than Facebook are like under 
30 or, or very well educated. Most people, their phones are just messaging, phone calls and Facebook. And that's all they know unless they kind of get told by somebody or they get taught by like a generous relative or, or something like that. And that, you know, also means that, that um, economically things are kind of tricky for people because they have no conception of like people people in Myanmar get scammed all the time basically on their phones and it's really sad and sucks one of the things i wanted to ask was burbrit which is short short for burma britain this part of me that sort of uh sort of shudders a little bit about that because burma is the old name the old colonial name uh for myanmar um and then brit is uh for for, for britain um that it it, it there's something to my white sensitivities that sort of sounds like that's a very colonial name, and yet it's been named by a, a couple of Burmese um, people. And is there any sensitivity around the the, the the history and the culture of Burma as a British colony? Yeah, there is a little bit, but it's mostly in the past. You know, it's been 70 years since they got independence, and there's been so much kind of political turmoil and and challenge inside the country since then that, um, you know, uh, people don't forget the fact that they were, you know, ruled by foreigners for a while. But at the same time, people uh, don't necessarily rank that as the biggest evil that has happened to their country, if that makes sense. Um, And yeah, good point about it being like a vaguely colonial name, but a few of the breweries here are are quite like that. And that was what I was going to come to, because uh, I mean, I I look at, there was um, Garage Project that a couple of years ago very quickly changed their name when there was a a very small number of complaints about their death from above Indogene uh, Pale Ale. And there was a, a real sensitivity around that in a European country. And yet there's a Vietnamese brewery um, that's called Heart of Darkness. They're very big and very well respected here. And uh, it, uh, that, that, that's something that I'm sort of really grappling with and sort of starting to wonder whether there isn't a, 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 a European sensitivity that doesn't exist in, in, in the countries that these things actually took place. Is, do you have a read on that? Because I'm really grappling with uh, you know, some, some of these ideas. Uh, I think like, as regards to, you know, so, so I'll just think about these two cases. Heart of Darkness, Vietnamese people are not going to make the connection about where that comes from and, and how that is connected to Apocalypse Now and the American War. Um, it's just not something that's going to immediately happen. And I don't think that the brewery is is kind of um, pushing, trying to trying to educate the masses about where that name comes from. Um, regarding like Burr Brit, so here's the thing: beer is definitely seen as a as a foreign drink in Myanmar. Like it's the beer, it's the beer, it's the drink of the you know previously the invaders, the people from the west, and it's still very much marketed like that um, by the big breweries inside the country. Uh, so you know, there's something legitimate about calling the brewery Burr Brit, because the British brought beer to the country for the first time. Uh, first brewery was built in uh, 1886, um, and it was an all-ale brewery by an English brewer. Coincidentally, that's the first year that global lager production first overtook global ale production, and the British were still conquering new territories and building ale breweries, you know, <laughs> stubbornly holding on to their um, bitters and things. Uh, and so, yeah, so uh, for a very long time, the only beers that were in Myanmar were English-style ales, and that's what people were used to back then. Um, but, of course, no country managed to hold out against the onslaught of uh, German lager brewing science. Um, yeah, so 
the sensitivity thing is a very tricky one. It's hard to speculate um, about different cultures. But I think that, you know, the, the British connection with beer in Burma um, is one that just makes sense to people. It's intuitive. It's factual. Talking about the English ale breweries and then the, the, the rise, particularly around the Pacific Rim, of German Pilsner breweries and a lot of the breweries that brands we see today are... Uh, um, inspired or often started by the uh, by, by German brewers, did that uh, penetrate into the then Burma um, at, at some stage as well? Yeah, it did. So the Mandalay Brewery, which was the only brewery in the country for a hundred years, um, did end up giving up on all of its ales, with the exception of stouts, and it started doing lagers. And partly that was because of uh, the Cold War. So for a so the brewery was basically nationalised. The story with that brewery is that, yep, opened up in 1886, but um, after Burma got independence, there was a lot of influence um, from the socialist side of, you know, economic ideology, and uh, basically it, it had like 12 names in a period of 10 years or something, like the State and People's Distillery and all these kinds of things, and uh, some specialists came over from what was then, you know, Czechoslovakia and part of the USSR, and they converted everything over to lagers. Uh, and yeah, so that since then it's been um, it was all lagers all the time, with the exception of these tropical stouts that hung on, just like in some countries in Africa, these these sweet sickly stouts uh, somehow kept their kind of um, people kept the taste for them, you know, yeah, which is completely. Um, bizarre to me because they taste terrible and I've, I've got to be very careful because everyone everyone without exception has basically commented on the tea um here in in thailand and the one cup that i've had was presented to me and it was served without milk but it was cloyingly sweet um which was almost to take away the you know tea's bitterness and i wonder if that's not a flavor cue that's driving that sort of roasted stout you can only have it if it's ridiculously sweet yeah yeah it could be and the way that people talk about um, these beers in Myanmar is that uh, it's all about ABV so you've got all of your simple lagers around four or five percent and then you've got these big eight percent super sickly sweet beers and you know there's a lot of like masculinity stuff in there it's like I don't drink that I only drink these big beers and and, you know we've tried to um jump on that bandwagon a little bit and sort of, you know, say we don't have to drink that. You know, we have lovely 8% beers as well. Um, now, you came to be in uh, Myanmar uh, doing field work for your PhD. What's the current timetable when we can read the history uh, and traditions of brewing in uh, Myanmar? Well, I'll be completely honest with you. Um, you know, the thesis is going to be couched in stupid academic speak and it's probably not going to be anyone's cup of tea except for the very few academics that have to read it. But what will be much more, I think, um, interesting for people is this coffee table book that I'm going to put out by uh, next January is the plan. Um, and that's going to be, you know, like a big, full-colour, 130 pages um, kind of exploration of all of the unique, like, drinking cultures inside Myanmar. Uh, unfortunately, it won't have anything about the history of the um, beer industry here. But, uh, yeah, maybe maybe the thesis will turn into something that will be a little bit more, um, you know, like, user-friendly. Uh, because I really cannot kind of stress enough the way that you are forced to write in the Department of Anthropology. <laughs> it's... Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's something we can do because it sounds like it's been a riveting conversation learning a little bit about Myanmar and its beer culture. So I'm sure there is a, something that you'll be able to pull out of the dry academic, academic words and uh, uh, make much more interesting. So, Luke Corbin, thank you very much for joining us on Beer as a Conversation. Um, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure meeting you. And uh, 
I'd really love to get to Myanmar and try some Burbrit beers uh, one day very soon. Yes, really. Um, everybody is welcome. And anyone who's coming, just uh, send me an email, email at lukecorbin.org, and I'll show you around the brewery and show you around the city of Yangon, which is a thriving cosmopolitan metropolis like nowhere else on earth. And that was Luke Corbin. And I thank Luke for his time, but also for listening to the podcast. It was quite a thrill to run into a listener in such an out-of-the-way location. Thanks also to Seabrew for hosting us. Seabrew will be held next year in Taipei in mid-October. We'll share the confirmed dates as soon as they're available. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation.